I'm your host, Jean McCarthy. I write the blog Unpickled. I've been telling my story there since my first day of sobriety in 2011. So I write about my life there and I ask you all about your life here. And today on the show, I have an amazing woman, a fellow Canadian. Her name is Jen McNeely. And Jen built an entire business around her lifestyle of partying and fun, creating a website to promote and review events and venues and activities in her hometown of Toronto, Ontario, here in Canada. And that enabled her to blur the lines between fun and work and also created a a dynamic that made it challenging when it came time to make changes in her life. She's going to tell us about that. And we're going to fast forward to today where her business continues to thrive even as she lives differently. And also now she organizes and hosts events for women in recovery. Jen, welcome to the Bubble Hour. Hi, Jean. Thank you. (laughs) Nice to have you here. I'm honored. So, um, we met in New York. We were both on the blogger panel at the She Recovers event in New York. How funny to go all the way to New York to meet a fellow Canadian and become aware of the cool things that you're doing. We're sort of on opposite ends of the country, so our paths wouldn't mm-hmm. have crossed otherwise. So it was really cool to get to know you there. And I'm looking forward to hearing your story today. So I'll have you jump in and tell us about yourself. Well, I guess I can go right back to when I was a teenager, when you sort of mentioned to me earlier today that I was going to be telling my whole story, I thought I, I, I had one night that kept on flashing in my brain, which is the first night that I had alcohol. And um, it was uh, when I was in grade nine. So I would have been 14. And I was a really young 14 year old. I was you know, I I maybe weighed like 90 pounds, if that, and I was prepubescent, so I hadn't got my period yet. I was um, still playing with Barbies and all that kind of stuff. But I went out with some friends one night, and we ended up at a girlfriend's house, a friend of a friend in Toronto. Um, And it's funny the kind of things you can remember. Um, Like, I, I remember the lighting in the room and the knapsack that this girl... Jane, she pulled out a couple bottles of wine and I was in shock really because I had never considered drinking or, you know, it seemed like we were doing something so bad, but um, there was just four of us and I thought, okay, well, I'll give this a whirl. And uh, I think we just drank some wine from the bottle. Immediately, I felt the effects. I was comfortable in my environment. I, I suddenly felt like I could engage with some. We were laughing. We started sort of running around the house. And, you know, it was just, it was like kids playing, but with alcohol, uh, when I think back to it. From that moment, I knew that this was a feeling I really liked. And I was going to chase it. I was going to do that for, you know, every Friday night, that was going to be my goal um, to, to feel like that again. And so that's what I did. I remember grade 10, you know, at the, at the start of grade 10, it was like a, a mission to get to get the, the booze into me by the end of the week. I wasn't drinking at that point. I wasn't really drinking, you know, during the week. This was in the mid-90s, so there was no, like, phones or anything like that and no emails. So, you know, me and my friends would write notes in class and, and pass them to each other, scheming of, like, how we would get our, our booze on on Friday night and creativity that went into, you know, acquiring alcohol was actually quite impressive. So, you know, it would be anything from standing in a payphone at the local beer store and kind of like, I like eyeballing people that we, we thought maybe would look willing to go buy us, you know, it was called, we called it shoulder tapping back then. I don't know if, if that's a term that's used these days. So we would ask strangers to buy alcohol for us or we would steal it from our parents. I would I remember once going down to my dad's office building 
and stealing it from um, the boardroom, kitchen. Um, I would babysit kids and I would pocket beers from the parents' fridge. And uh, I remember my grandparents went out of town. I had a key to their place and I went in and I got it. And so it was just like the whole year when I think back to it was about this sort of ongoing game of finding booze and getting drunk on weekends. And that's when it really just all began. From the get-go, I was drinking differently than my peers because I recall going to, we had a lot of park parties in those days. And I remember getting just so wasted and being on the ground and people sort of walking on my back. I had this white t-shirt and we got footprints on it. And I could kind of hear people saying, you know, she's a mess or like who would ever want to date her, that kind of thing. And that was sort of like my teenage years. So I guess as I got a little bit older, you know, 17, 18, we had our OAC year then in Ontario. So we we were in high school for five years. So we didn't go off to university until we were like 19. It progressed so that there was times where I was drinking in the morning or like I would go to school and, and have a screwdriver in my lunchbox. My parents were concerned about me, but they were, but I was also very good at hiding it all. And I was still achieving decent grades and um, pulling through and, you know, it didn't somehow, I don't know how I was able to sort of sit in math class drunk and still kind of continue. So, and my parents had their own issues at, at that point. I think they were both dealing with a lot of stress, a lot of anger and sadness about the, you know, the, their divorce. And, um, um, so maybe they didn't see as clearly what was going on. Um, but I went off to university in Montreal And that's when things got, you know, increasingly worse in the sense that I was, I had no parents around. So I was able to drink all the time whenever I wanted. Um, And I still kept it sort of like most days I didn't drink, but I would go out five or six times a week. And I found this dive bar down by uh, where my apartment was. It was called the Cock and Bull. I think it's still there on St. Catharines. And um, I would sit at the bar with a bunch of old men and I would order rum and Coke. That was my thing at that point. You know, it got to the point where I had like a, a running tab at this dive bar and I didn't have to even order when I walked in because they knew they would just give me two double rum and Cokes right off the bat. So that's the kind of way I drank mostly through university. It was a bit messy, but it was also, it still blended in with most of my peers because it was Montreal and people were drinking and, you know, I I still was able to, again, like go to school and do okay. Although, you know, I could have done much better and I would have gotten a lot more at a university had I quit or had I not been drinking the way I had. But I also knew that I had a big problem and I always knew that I had a problem and so the first time I went to an AA meeting was actually when I was in, I think I was like 20 years old. And I remember going to a church basement um, in Montreal and just like checking out the scene, what it was all about. And I remember hearing it, it was a, a physician who was talking and he was talking about how he was taking drugs before operating on people. I was like, well, that is certainly not what I'm doing. Like, I'm just a kid partying and like, that's not my, that's not. You know, I'm not like crazy like that. I'm not drinking and driving. So I left that meeting and I thought it was interesting, but I, you know, had headed straight to a bar right after that and uh, continued on. And throughout my 20s, I was always a very heavy drinker, always throwing parties, uh, dancing on tables, having a lot of fun. I would say that actually in my 20s, it, I was able to control my drinking a lot more than in my teeny in than in my university years and in high school. I I got some jobs. I thrived in my workplaces. I didn't really drink unless it was on the weekend. I was definitely a binge drinker and definitely somebody who got sloppy at your party, but I was, you know, I was also invited to a lot of things because I was seen as fun and I was fun and and so in my 20s for the most part, it looked like I had a handle on things and I felt like I had a handle on things. So I guess in my late twenties, I was, um, it started to progress again. And the second time that I really, really realized that I had a problem was when I was 29 and, um, I went to my second AA meeting then. And I, and I did it for like a little bit, like I did it a couple months. And then I remember 
we had actually, um, my ex-husband at the time, um, so we took a break from drinking and I had gone to a few of these AA meetings, but I hadn't, I, ha- I wasn't really taking it so seriously. Like I was trying something, but then we had signed up for this event where it was a dinner in Toronto. It's called Charlie's Burgers and they have these secret dinner um, parties in venues that they don't tell you, but they don't disclose in advance. So the night of you find out where, where the uh, event's going to be. We didn't know until we got there, but the address was actually a wine cellar on King, on King West. So when I got into the wine cellar, I was like, well, I'm not going to not drink in a wine cellar. So then I, <clears throat> whatever the uh, brief stint of not drinking I had was, um, I began drinking again and um, my marriage was really strained. I was going out all the time. I was not communicating. I was coming home at all hours without ever sort of sharing where I was going. I was, you know, like I can remember being kind of too drunk to open my front door and kind of crumpled on the on the front steps and my husband finding me. I started falling down. I chipped my tooth. I got a couple black eyes. It was really just getting to a next level of dependency and, and sickness. And all the while, I guess I can go back to what you were sharing, Gene, at the beginning. So I, in my 20s, I worked in film and media. I worked at the CBC. I worked in publicity and marketing, much music. And so I was always running with a work hard, play hard crowd. And, you know, drinking was just part of a lot of the kind of extracurricular in the in the industry that I was in. And um, when I was 20s, I guess it was 20, yeah, I was 27. I decided to um, start a blog because at the time a blog was this thing that nobody even really, half the people didn't even know what that word meant. And um, this was just when Facebook came out, YouTube had just started. I had been working at the CBC and there was this sort of panic of like, you know, ad dollars are shifting to the internet, ad dollars are shifting to the internet. What are we going to do? And people are starting, starting to watch things on, on this thing called YouTube. And so I thought, okay, well, this is something's happening here. So I, I thought I would start this online property um, because what I felt like was lacking in Canadian media was a publication that was that sh- that spoke and had a voice that was honest. So it felt like you know the way you would talk with your girlfriends. And I guess at that point, I mean, it was 2007. That's kind of coming off like Sex and the City ended a few years before that, but certainly that series was about, you know, women talking with their girlfriends, honestly, and like the kind of swearing. And it's, it sounds so dated now, but really women's media for a long time was so safe. It was like very sweet, polite, and no one really got into the, the real talk. Um, so I started this thing called SheDoesTheCity.com. And because I was 27 and I was drinking really hard, most of it was about sharing, not most of it, but a, a huge percent, percentage of the content and certainly the voice was this sort of like, don't tell me what to do, like rebellious, um, party hard type of thing. And uh, I would go out every night and I would write about the kind of stuff that I got up to in the evening. I would take pictures and to, you know, to kind of create more interesting storylines, I would party harder and I'd go, like I'd go to different um, venues and I'd, you know, be out late into the night. And so this is the lifestyle that I created, which um, allowed me to continue with my drinking and gave me an excuse to do so. Um, You know, I have to be out. It's part of my work. Like I have to go to all the parties. I have to, you know, so I had a gazillion excuses in my back pocket. And until it didn't work and I hit a wall and I was hospitalized at one point because I just went like complete burnout. And it was, it was to do with, you know, the partying, um, how, how hard it was on my body, but I was also smoking a lot when I was drinking and I have asthma. I was a kid with asthma. I was a kid with like, you know, um, a mask that I went to bed with every night. I mean, I was the last person who should be smoking. Um, but when I was drinking, I would definitely smoke like half a pack a pack a night. So anyways, all this behavior led me to a full breakup, you know, just a complete burnout. And I was in the hospital and IV and all this kind of stuff. And 
eventually, um, none of these things stopped my drinking. Like the only thing that stopped my drinking after many fights and many, you know, um, bloody situations, bruises, all that kind of stuff was when my husband at the time turned to me one day and he said, you're not fit to be a mother. And it was those words that hit me like just a dagger in my heart because I had always wanted to be a mother and I knew he was right. Like the way that I was moving and what I was doing to myself, there's no way I couldn't take care of myself. So how could I possibly, you know, have a baby? Luckily, I I didn't have a kid at the time and we weren't trying at the time, but, you know, it was something that we wanted as a couple. So that's that it was those words that stung so hard. Um, They ripped me apart, but it's also what forced me to wake up and really deal with what what was happening to me. Um, And I remember going to a meeting that night. And it's funny how, like, if you look back at your journey and, you know, like I'm looking back all the way to when I was. Uh, 15. So I'm going back like 25 years, how you can remember certain things with such clarity. And I remember with such clarity, the meeting I went to when I, when I finally decided I got to do something here. And it was a meeting at uh, CAMH, which is the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, which is down the street from where I live. And it was an AA meeting and I walked into the room and there was like four people there. So it was a really small meeting. And this guy, you know, I, I shared what brought me there that evening. And this guy turned to me and said, well, you might not be able to save your marriage, but you'll be, you can save yourself. And he was right. My marriage did end. It ended about, you know, six months after this, this first meeting, you know, it wasn't just the drinking, like there was other issues. And a lot of our problems were masked by the drinking and by the constant escapism, that relationship ended, but I did start my journey with uh, recovery in a, you know, I was actually committed to doing that. And um, it's so, it's so funny because now like I'm, I've sort of become this advocate for recovery and, and I, and I've talked a lot on, in the media about it, like on, on, TVO on CBC and in the Globe and Mail, Toronto Star, and but at the time when I started this journey, this was this would have been um, 2009 when I started. When is it? 2000? No, 2010 when I began actually taking recovery seriously. I couldn't speak, and I, you know, for the first six months that I attended those meetings, I couldn't even say anything. I didn't reach out to talk to people. I didn't want to take your number and call you. I'm not calling you. And so it was a slow start, Um, but I stayed sober and eventually, you know, this one woman's story kind of jived with mine and, and, and she said, do you want to go for coffee? And she kept on asking me out for coffee. And then eventually I said, are you my sponsor? And she was like, yeah, that's what's happening here. And And so it was a very sort of different kind of way that it all came together because I think most often you get people, you know, when you're in recovery, it's like, go find yourself a sponsor and you're asking people to be your sponsor. But, you know, everybody's, everybody's um, path is a little bit different. I remember hearing, you know, one guy speaking and he's, he's still a friend of mine, but he said, if you, you know, if you think about um, gazelles running uh, on in like the plains of, you know, somewhere in Africa and they're being hunted by a lion, um, it's always going to be the, the animals on the outside that are eaten first. That visual to me was extremely powerful and it stuck with me. And I said, oh, I'm, and, and I knew from that moment that I was like, I'm still on the outside here. I haven't really, I haven't made friends. I haven't committed. So I remember nervously like tapping a couple women on the shoulders that were around the same age as me being like, hi, I'm Jen. And I feel like I should have some friends in this. So I'm just wondering if I, you know, I just wanted to introduce myself and maybe like go out for coffee sometime. And I mean, it was so, so awkward. I was so awkward. That's how it began. And from there, I just kept going back and going back and going back. And, and I went to AA very regularly and met a lot of wonderful friends that are still my friends for a couple of years. I stopped going 
I guess when I met um, my now partner, um, it wasn't because of him. I just something something changed, and you know, I I think it was I was just ready for something different, or I'm not sure. But um, I started this relationship, and then I I got pregnant fairly quickly in the relationship. I think we were together maybe I don't know six months, nine months, and um, and then I stopped going because I didn't really feel like going to AA with a big pregnant belly, mostly because I was scared of being judged. I didn't want people thinking that I was pregnant and drinking and you don't know everybody in the rooms. And, you know, that's my own like <laughs> insecurities, but I didn't feel comfortable. So I started seeking out different types of places where I felt healthy. So I did lots of like prenatal yoga. And and then I kind of had a gap in my in my recovery where I wasn't properly taking care of myself and that had to do with being a new mom and being tired and not sleeping and not having time and overwhelmed and like postpartum anxiety and all that stuff. But I, but one thing that I always did was I, I still documented my story. I shared my story. When I did get sober, um, I thought there's no way I can do shit as a city anymore because it was all about being sort of debaucherous and indulgent and like late nights and, and drinking and partying and all that kind of stuff. And people even said to me, well, you can't do she does a city anymore because like, how can you possibly do it now that you stopped drinking? A realization that should have been so easy was that not everybody's into that. And there is so much more to write about that doesn't involve drinking and all these cool events that you were attending with open bars or whatever, like you were missing like most of the actual content, like the the actual good stuff that was happening at that event. I realized at one point after I got my confidence in recovery, after I started sharing my story, which I had to do, by the way, because as a writer, I felt completely stuck when I wasn't able to share freely about my life. For me, sharing that story was you know, people said it was like so brave and whatever. It was like, I just had to do it because I couldn't continue writing about anything. It didn't matter if it had nothing to do with drinking. I just couldn't be a writer without being honest. So I began sharing my story and that, you know, that wasn't all of what the site was about because it's never been about just me or my story, but it took things in a different direction and recovery and mental health became a part of our editorial mandate. And um, it's certainly not all that we do, but it informs everything that we do. It's kind of like a lens that we have on when we decide what to write about and share. When I was had my son, I really like, I wasn't in active recovery. And it was only when I went to She Recovers in New York, when I met Eugene in 2017, that I realized, oh God, like I've been missing a community. I guess he was born in 2014. So by the time I got to She Recovers, I guess he was two and a half. And I, and for those two and a half years, I was in the new mom, like overwhelmed fog. And I was really lacking the community. I was act, I was lacking my ongoing recovery, you know, dedication to, to it. And when I went to New York, I was blown away with what I saw, which was 500 women recovering out loud in a positive sort of brightly lit space. There was no shame. It was just a totally different vibe than anything I had seen or experienced. And I remember breaking down into, you know, like at the very end of that weekend, um, I was sort of like walking in, like I'm always a little bit um, skeptic of joining things and, I, I'm not really somebody who gets all wrapped up in the whole sisterhood thing. I don't like hugging people. Um, so I was sort of like one foot in, one foot out, but I was incredibly moved and the speakers blew me away. And at the end of the weekend, I remember kind of going up to Dawn Nickel, who's the co-founder of She Recovers and sort of just crumpling into her arms and crying. And then I decided right there, you know, I was like, I got to, I got to recreate this in Toronto. This has to be available to women in Toronto. And I, I realized that there are other possibilities. In 2017, it was the 10 year anniversary of She Does a City. And we had a, a big party. And the way that that party looked was a weekend full of different events. So we had, you know, we had Pilates events, we had um, photography panel, we had a film, a woman in film panel discussion and that was it, that happened like right after um the me too movement took hold 
and um, and also in that weekend we had a recovering out loud um, event and I think you know we've moved so much in those three years um, but in 2017 that was like really rebellious to have an event of that nature and I I partnered with she recovers and I had Taryn come out and she was on the panel and and Dossett Johnson you know the the author of drink was on the panel and Yawida Budlowska, author of Drunk Mom, and my friend Nanook Fareel, who's um, an activist, in, an Indigenous activist in Toronto. You know, we had this event and then I realized that it just sort of, like one thing after the other led to the other. And after this event, we had um, a circle like where women could just sit around and we passed around this clipboard. And if you wanted to stay in touch, then you could write down your email address. And I collected maybe like 25 email addresses or something like that. And we just began having sort of monthly meetups in Toronto at Muse Movement, which is a beautiful Pilates studio um, in Artscape Young Place. And we didn't call them anything. We weren't, we weren't really, we didn't have like a structure, but it was basically a place where women recovering from all different things could come, gather, share. And that was basically it. And uh, it was really beautiful. And we did that for a year. And then Dawn contacted me and said, you know, we would love to have this be a She Recovers official thing. And I said, well, I would love that too, because I feel like we don't have a backbone here, you know, and we need some principles and guidelines. And they'd been working hard on that for so many years that it gave us something, you know, to, to structure things with and, a bigger community to lock into. And so in January of 2019, we began meeting weekly at West Neighborhood House. And really we have not put like, aside from like a couple things I've shared on Instagram, like it's been something with very little promotion. Most Mondays that we meet, it's a very small group, you know, it can be, can be just four or five women, but the, community online there's like over like there's around 250 people in it and it's just for me it's like the pause in the week that I need to just relax and breathe and reflect and and be with women in an incredibly real and raw and vulnerable way that um you know and I have those relationships with my regular girlfriends but it's different it's you know we come to the table with just purge of whatever's going on in our head and that's been a very uh, important part of my recovery today as well as you know continuing to to write and share and be an advocate and and my fitness and walking and good sit downs with my closest friends and all that kind of stuff it's all part of my my sort of wheel I always sort of like a pie graph of like what's important to me to to remain healthy um, and that's kind of where we're at, where I'm at today. And it's kind of, and right now it's, it's actually Bell Let's Talk in Canada, which is a huge, um, the 10th anniversary of Bell Let's Talk is a, a giant phone company spearheaded, um, a, a thing once a year where people share to help break st- stigma when it comes to mental, mental illness and addiction. And, um, I guess it's, it's interesting that I'm talking to you today because, like a, two hours ago, we just posted this thing on shedoesthecity.com where it was 10 Toronto women who stopped drinking to support their mental health and what they want to stay, say about fighting stigma. So to really look at my story from the beginning, you know, not necessarily like when I was a teenager, but just from when I began She Does the City is like, it's, it's night and day. And, um, and and that's obviously, you know, part of the gifts and beauty of recovery is that, you know, people say that you can't change, but you can. To see how I've transformed and the business has transformed is just, it's it's a pretty cool story. Um, so, yeah, that's kind of where I'm at today. <laughs> that's really so cool, that's, Jen. And what for yeah. the, my first question for you, I guess, is as I'm hearing you talk about this, is what what's the feedback like when you started writing about being sober and being a woman in recovery. Um, And you probably didn't use that language around it because that's fairly new language. Uh, No one was really writing about it a whole lot at the time. I know when I started my 
blog in 2011, there was only a handful that I could find right. at the time. So a lot of us kind of created our, our own language and or yeah. did our best. And then as we heard things that sounded better, we started incorporating it. How did you describe yourself at that time and what was the response? I described myself as an alcoholic. I just was very open. I went to Montreal and just shared about stuff. I shared about my own story. I shared about just days in Montreal. I shared about about my concerns about she does the city, you know, and I just, and, and I also shared about my feelings on anonymity and why I felt like that was an outdated thing. I'm not saying everybody should be not anonymous or whatever, because I, I get that I, I had the privilege of not having a boss. I had the privilege of being a white woman from, you know, an upper middle class background. And I knew, I knew when I shared my story that I wouldn't suffer the same kind of consequences that others perhaps would. Um, Mm -hmm. I knew that it wouldn't change my perception. I knew that I would still get invited to things. And I, you know, I, I, I don't know how I knew, but I knew. And I just, from the get go, it was just, uh, it was completely liberating for me immediately just people came out and said, I have, you know, I know my, my mother my sister, my partner, me, you know, that was just, that's just how it's been ever since. And I guess as I continue the journey, you kind of, and you end up kind of getting yourself into a bubble where there's so many people around you in recovery that you sometimes forget that there's still so many people who are not at all close to that space. So sometimes I forget, like it's, it's come so easy for me to just share about it. And, uh, and as I have, my network has shifted and changed. And, you know, I'm sure I'm like you where it's like on Facebook, if I have like, you know, three, 3000 friends and I'm sure like 20% of them are in the recovery community. When I went to Ottawa last week and I was sharing on a TV show in conjunction with dry January there was like a call in and people were calling in with their questions. And almost every question was like, how do I tell my friends and my family that I've, I'm not drinking anymore. And I was like, Oh my gosh, like I can't believe that this is still such a thing that there's so much anxiety about just not even talking about your story, like forget that, but just saying, I'm not having a drink tonight. Constantly blown away just by how much further we have to go to, um, really change things. So what was your advice to those callers? Did you have to catch up with yourself a little bit to to be able to relate and, and offer advice or encouragement? What, what well, I mean, because we've just come off the holiday season, and as you know, because you wrote a whole book about how to handle the holiday season, um, I was thinking about it a little bit, you know, like it has been on my mind. And obviously, in the She Recovers meetups that we have every week, there's people coming in all the time that are brand new. So I'm never, I'm never so removed from it, but it still surprises me. And when I was talking to those people, I just, I gave them much of the same advice that, you know, that we talked about before, before the holidays, which is just like, have a plan, have like a one line, like, but after about the fourth question, like say, like, I just, I'm not, doesn't serve me anymore. Drinking does not serve me anymore. So I changed and like that should be enough. And the more you say it, the more things will shift around you. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think it's so hard for people because it's such a big obstacle in our own minds. Like we identify yeah. ourselves so much with drinking and we, mm-hmm. it takes us so long to get to where we can start to believe that we can be non-drinkers, be alcohol free, <laughs> that, I, I think it takes time as we redefine ourselves. For sure. To I mean, language to I it. know when I, when I stopped drinking to begin with, and I went to all those same events that I went to when I was drinking, I actually didn't even know how to stand. Like, I wasn't sure how to use right. my hands. I wasn't sure where to put them. I was like, do I put them on my hip? Like, do I hold a glass of water? I was so conscious and aware of every single movement. How do I say hi to this person so I seem relaxed? You know, because I never had to, I had to relearn how to be social and interact because I I hadn't done it properly since I was 14. And, you know, that's when they, they sort of talk about the, the, how you stunt your growth. Yeah. And I really do believe that I, I was like emotionally stunted completely. And when I look now, like I turned 40 last year 
and when I look at sort of like 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 a long view of of all of this, it's like my teens are when it all began. My twenties is where I went kind of went completely overboard. My thirties were about was about recovering, and I like to think about my forties as like now I'm getting stronger, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that I think that we sort of underestimate how long the process is of healing. Because I know for me, it didn't come easy, like at all. Like like I said, like that first meeting I went to was in was in 1999 or something. Yeah, it takes a long time to put all those layers of like shellac on top of who we really are. And yeah. it takes a long time to sand them all off again, right? It doesn't just happen yeah. overnight. You know, it, yeah. I, I've been thinking lately about the word recovery because I have a friend who said she doesn't like that word. She says, I'm not sick. I'm not recovering from a mm. sickness. So, you know, that she doesn't like the language around that. And I thought, wow, that's so interesting because I never have really thought about it in that way. To me, recovery is like getting back to who I was before I started, not just before I started drinking, but before I started feeling like I had to change to fit into the world. Right. Right. And getting, so I'm, it's like I'm recovering nine-year-old Jean and then right. having to bring her up to being a 52-year-old woman. And it's not just reparenting myself, it's really rediscovering myself. And, yeah. um, and that's what I'm recovering. That's who I'm recovering. And when you think of it that way, it's, completely different. Yeah. Uh, I, I mean, if I, I wanted... if I were to think about it that way, it's like, yeah, I'm like, I think I, the, the kind of crack happened with me when I was like eight, seven or eight years old, my family was going through a very difficult split. And I've never really given that part of my life, the kind of attention it deserves of like, that was traumatic, you know? And I, mm-hmm. I kind of brushed it under the rug because I had parents who loved me dearly and took care of me and nurtured me and sent me to wonderful schools and make sure I had, you know, healthy dinners and all that kind of stuff. But it was still, that's when things went kind of in a different direction. Do you mind me asking, did your parents split up at that age? Is that what was going they on? They started or? to split up in that age and it was a very long drawn out break. So I don't think that they actually like signed papers until maybe I was like 13, 14, but you know, but it's when the idea, my dad moved out, I think. Right. So it's like the first time as a kid, you start to realize, Oh, okay. My situation might not be permanent. Right. Or that last week we, I guess, talked about attachment disruption and, and how looking back, you know, that was kind of at the core of things. Yeah. It's like, it's not what is responsible for everything, but it started, it's just, it impact, there was an impact that then I began to kind of move in a slightly different direction. And like, I had a, I, I, I think for me, the initial, when I got drunk, you know, when I go back to that first time when I was 14, it was like, suddenly I realized that all this weight I had on my shoulders, this anxiety and the stress disappeared. And that is what I was carrying through my childhood was a, yeah. a lot of, of stress. And so that's sort of like, the, and then the pattern began where it's like, Oh, well that felt good. So I'm just going to like, I'll never deal with those feelings again. <laughs> so, right. I figured this out. I have the magic formula yeah. <laughs> the shortcut yeah. to figuring this out. And I, I completely understand what you mean about being able to identify where something comes from without blaming it on someone else. I mean, yeah. there's a difference between an ex explanation and an excuse and knowing yourself better versus blaming someone else for something. And that's part mm-hmm. of the work that we do too, right? Is I always kind of think of it as like tiptoeing. Like it's like you're, you're sort of tiptoeing through a room that's full of maybe laundry or <laughs> things and you're, yeah. you're examining it all without really disturbing it and, and seeing where, you know, how this got there and um, yeah. putting, making sense of it all. And it's, it's mm-hmm. really quite an interesting process. Um, I want to talk a bit too about the group that you've created now that you, you know, you brought the She Recovers format to Toronto and have these meetups happening there. And one of the really brilliant things about that organization is that Dawn's belief and one of her, her guiding principles is that we're all in recovery from something and that, Mm -hmm. um, the process of recovery is remarkably similar. So it doesn't matter mm-hmm. if you're in recovery from gambling or love addiction mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. alcohol addiction or um, workaholism. It's all mm-hmm. recovery happens the same in similar 
it's a transferable skill. Yes. The process is remarkably yeah. similar. And I'm mm-hmm. guessing that that was a bit of a new idea for you when you were exposed to it for the first time in New York. Oh, yeah, totally. Yeah. So what's that been like for you now? I didn't really like overthink it or analyze it too much. It was just like one of those things that was clicked. And it's like, oh, yeah, of course. And I, and I do, and I think that was also how I knew that I was okay to write about it. Cause I was like, there's mm-hmm. nobody who's immune to like life, you know, just stuff happens. And if you don't have like some, if you, you don't have an addiction, somebody else in your family does. And if you don't have addiction, you know, if, if it's not addiction, it's cancer. And if it's not cancer, it's divorce. And if it's not divorce, it's eating, eating disorder, like whatever. I it didn't, didn't stew on it or think about it or overthink about it. It was just like, yep, that's correct. That's absolutely yeah. right. And we're all in this together. And, um, and in our group, you know, there's, there's women who are there with breast cancer. They don't have any, anything to do with like addiction or, or like any of those things that, you, you know, the, the, uh, workaholism or eating disorder, they're just there because they found a lump in their breast. I think we just embraced it quickly. And, and the more I spend time in that space talking, there's you know everybody's the same <laughs> you know we overcomplicate things in life but it it all comes down to the same stuff um mm-hmm. so i think that that's the the greatest revelation out of that group is that we're no different you know we all require the same thing and connection human connection is is like the the vital ingredient i love it i think that's so yeah. true I was just in a meeting last night, and one thing I say often in my head, and I guess on this show too, is that my addiction looks for differences between me and everyone else, and my recovery yeah. looks for the similarities. And so when oh, I'm really, yeah. right, like that's when we know yeah. we're really in that mind space. As soon as I hear myself thinking, oh, I'm not like them, or oh, they're de- oh they don't right. understand me, or I don't understand them. Judgy, I know the judgy that, voice or whatever. Yeah, exactly. And I, I need to know that that's the part of my brain that's going to get me in trouble and that right. I I need to shift gears and put a better voice in charge <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. because that, yeah. that is that there's trouble behind that kind of thinking. And, and I think it's what keeps a lot of us from going to the rooms in the first place. So, you know, you talk about that you went to a few meetings and dropped in on a few meetings and you're like, yeah, no, this isn't for me. And yet if you went to those same meetings today, if you could transport yourself back to those rooms today, you'd Mm -hmm. probably would be sitting and nodding and really hearing yourself there. But when you're not open to it and you're not operating. I mean, I was, I was also just not ready. And I think that is so you know, like I, I remember thinking like, I'm only 19. Like, I don't want to stop drinking. And then when I was 29, I was like, so I've got like a dozen 30th birthdays ahead of me. Like, no way. You have to be ready to receive it. And mm-hmm. nobody can push you unless they say something like you're going to be a shitty mother. And then maybe you will <laughs> get pushed a little faster. Well, and then, then that same argument doesn't work anymore. Right. I mean, so you turn 40, well, you've got a whole bunch of 40th birthday parties to go to yeah. that year. But yeah, that argument doesn't work for you anymore. That well, no. I, 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 yeah, I, I need to go to these. Parties. Yeah, so we really do move along, and uh, like mm-hmm. you say, when you're ready, you're ready. And I think the same is true for recovering out loud too. And I, I'm glad you talked yeah. about that. That for it really is for some people, and it's and it's really not for others. For some people, it's when you're ready. But there's no nothing saying that if you aren't recovering out loud, you're just not ready. Um, it's just no, not for no, some it's people. No, it's just a, I think it's a personal preference. And I think mm-hmm. somebody who's like, because I was always, I mean, I was naturally inclined to blogging and writing. So I was always a little bit more comfortable. And like if I was a, you know, somebody working in a corporate office with a boss or like a elementary school teacher, like I would feel different about sharing that story. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So, I mean, I, I get it that it's not comfortable for everybody. And I hope that one day it will be, you know, because I, I do think that admitting you have issues with drinking should be, you know, seen as the same as, yeah, I've got bad asthma. Like I need right. my ventolin. Yeah. So, uh, um, or I don't smoke anymore. You know, I used to yeah. smoke. It's not good for me. I, yeah, I I think you're right, and I, a lot of that has to do with language. And I, we are changing 
um, yeah. the, the conversation and the attitudes towards it. it. Like you say, it's when we're looking at how far we have to go, it's, it seems like things haven't changed that much. And yet when I think about my dad was in recovery for many years and, um, uh, things have definitely changed since then. They definitely have. And I actually think yeah, women are leading the charge on that. They definitely have, but I think that you and I are also both living in our own little recovery world sometime, you know, yeah. and then when you, <laughs> so it's like everybody's around us is in, is, is talking about it. And is you know, uh, it's the same as like politics online. It's like, if you've got like, you know, a bunch of people who think one way on your Facebook feed, then you think everybody thinks that way. So, um, I think that's what, what was interesting about going to Ottawa because I wasn't in my home turf anymore of, you know, West End Toronto, like she does the city. I wasn't in the recovery space. I was just like, it was just like a different environment. And I realized like, wow, they're talking about things that I felt we dealt with already. Uh, but yeah. um, that's interesting. That's a good point. That's a, that's a really good point. I'm glad you said that because that is true. You're right. We do get used to our own little bubble and where it almost seems like everybody has a memoir about their drinking, but, <laughs> but it's like, we're all chatting with each other, you know? <laughs> right. That's right. And I'm here week after week, you know, yeah. uh, hearing, hearing people talk about it and broadcasting it. Um, so it is yeah. true. That is true. There's, we do have lots of work to do, but this is how it happens. Yeah. It's just by yeah, having conversations sure. like this. So what would you yeah. say is the best part about the way you're living your life now? I think I can see more clearly. You know, for me, it's like when I was drinking, when I think back to it, I just feel like I was always in a race to um, to drink. Like I was always, it was always on my mind. You know, I was able, obviously capable of doing all sorts of other things, but there was always like a bottle of wine in the way. And because of that, I couldn't see things around me that were, you know, just like the simple pleasures in life. Like I feel like at a restaurant, I couldn't concentrate on the food in front of me because I was thinking about wine and like even my neighborhood, like it just, it shifted. So things that I would, you know, the way that I looked at the neighborhood then, which is like knowing every single bar that's open and like the bartender who works behind the bar, like now I see, you know, certain people with like beautiful flowers in their lawn and like the, all the stuff that's for kids that I just was blind to earlier and like not completely but I just I think that I'm able to slow down and I'm not distracted as much I don't know I I feel like I soak up a lot of the beauty that I wasn't concentrating on before oh that's awesome if anyone's listening and they are going to be passing through Toronto or if they live in Toronto how can they get in touch with you about um, checking out your group or if they're even curious about asking you questions about starting their own group in their own community how can people find you and learn more about this well I'm online in all different directions but so on Twitter and Instagram it's just at she does the city and if you send a direct message to either of those then I'm there. I'm also on my Instagram. I have a personal feed. that's just uh, my name, Jen McNeely 79. And that I, I also respond there. So that's probably the best way. We currently meet every Monday night, seven to eight 30 at West neighborhood house at Dundas and Ossington. I'm not there a hundred percent of the time anymore because we've, we've recently, I've relinquished the role of, of being in charge and, and we've shifted to more of a collective but I'm there most often and it's always there. So that's always happening. Jen, thank yeah. you so much for spending time with thank us today you, and sharing your story. I really appreciate it. You're such a cool chick. I have to just say this. <laughs> you know, Canadians, we ha we have our own little culture here, I guess. And so when you talk about your career, much music and CBC, or that you've talked about your story in the Globe and Mail and Toronto Star, that's a really big deal. So for all of our American listeners, which is 90% of our listeners it's kind of a big deal and you're just super cool and I really oh, always you. enjoy talking to you and it makes me smile to think of you as a kind of dorky 14 year old because I just can't picture it I just think you're such awesome <laughs> <laughs> so it's great to talk to you today and uh, I really appreciate knowing you and having you here with us oh thank you Jean I really hope that I can make it out to Alberta one day to visit because you look like you live in the most gorgeous surroundings in this in this country 
Oh, thank you. It is really beautiful here. We live in yeah. the mountains and spend a lot of time there. So it's the absolute mm-hmm. antithesis of living in the city. It's more like she does the mountains. It's kind of... Yeah. <laughs> One day, that'll be me. Well, I thank mm-hmm. you for your time, listeners. Thank, thank you for you. being here. And for everyone, until next time, please do take good care. I did that, not proud, but that was me. And when I face it, I take back a little dignity. Not looking for excuses, I just want to be free from power. Weakness head on me. In a dark corner is where shame lies behind. You're strong just cause you keep it on the side It just stays and wait there To rob you of your pride Turn the light on, turn the light on You can't shine When you see oh, I did that Not proud that that was me And when I face it I take back a little dignity I'm not a just want to be free from power. Yeah.